Hi, this is Roberto Cavinti. I'm a bassist producer living in the city of Toronto, and you're listening to Talking Blues. <laughs> We're sitting in your studio today. What are you working on today? Well, it's interesting. Today, I'm. Uh, we were recording some music with my group Soul Stew. It's, uh, we're all studio musicians in Toronto. As you can tell by the name of the band, Soul Stew is from Memphis Soul Stew, King mm -hmm. Curtis, that thing. There. But we're all studio musicians of a certain age. We've had this band for 30 years. Wow. And uh, we've got three, you know, three albums. Well, just we've had three rehearsals. They didn't go well. Um, <laughs> But what we've, uh, what we always play, and we had steady gigs at the Orbit Room and places around Toronto, play at very uh, uh, jazz festivals mostly because we're mostly jazz musicians. This is like our guilty pleasure. That's a long way of me uh, going around to me saying that we're we did a thing today for the Jazz Performance Education Center, for all the stuff that's going on right now with the COVID nineteen. Um, Response and also with Black Lives Matter and uh, everything. So we did a bunch of songs today um, that featured our singer Michael Dunstan doing some Donny Hathaway, some Sam Cooke, and some Marvin Gaye. So wow. we did a, kind of a little mini suite of uh, '70s uh, kind of uh, socially aware songs, is what I would call them. So I get the feeling that you're one very busy man. Um, let me say this. I this is how I describe my career as uh, I used to be busy and now I'm occupied. <laughs> What's the difference? The difference is busy was when you're doing a lot of things you didn't want to do. Occupied is when you're doing things you like to do. So most of the time now I do things well because especially now I only do things that I, I want to do, you know. So this is something, this, this band uh, has, is always a lot of fun to do this stuff. They're fantastic musicians in it, of course. And uh, it's a good cause. But uh, I, this is the one gig that I have that's sort of into that world. My other, my other world is, is a lot different than that. I'm playing electric bass on this stuff, but mostly I'm a double bass player. But you have many, many worlds, from classical to jazz yeah. to, to R&B. Well, I say the the big thing for me is that uh, with everything that I do, everything my whole career, everything is based around the fact that I play the bass, and every uh, kind of uh, I, if you follow your curiosity about what you're doing, musical curiosity, things that mean something to you, you play the bass. Every genre of music has a bass in it. If you play, I play both basses, so I can play in a. I started off playing electric bass with my brother, playing uh, Beatles tunes and Led Zeppelin and things like that when I was 13 or 14. But as soon as I heard Ray Brown with the Oscar Peterson trio, it was, bam, that was my life, was to play the double bass, the string bass. Can I ask you what it was about that that, that, that made you decide to go that route? As a blues, it was like jazz. But you know, when we say blues, I mean, I was listening to the blues. As I was must have been a music nerd because I was thirteen. I was listening to Howlin' Wolf and you know because of the British blues uh, yeah. thing. But I wrote a paper when I, in grade eight on the influence of Chicago blues on the British rock scene, which is, I mean, what kind of a kid, what kind of a kid writes that kind of stuff? <laughs> so I was, I guess, I was a bit of a nerd with that, but. Um, you know, you go down, starting off 
that way. I'm, I'm referring everything towards the blues because that's sort of like the my entrance into uh, African American music and uh, working it th its way through. So from there, I when I heard Oscar Peterson, that record is called uh, Night Train, and wow. all it is is blues record. Is right. you know, but when I heard Ray Brown playing Walking on C Jam Blues, I said that was it for me. I immediately just I said that was it thing about musicians is you don't ever choose your instrument. Your instrument always chooses you. I wanted to be an alto saxophone player, but it was not my voice. We talk about, as musicians, what's your voice? And my voice is a bass. Even though I have a tenor voice singing, I'm a, it's a bass. Bass is my, my instrument. So that's, that's the way I uh, have always expressed myself. So you heard this and you said, I want to do that. How easy was it for you to learn how to play the bass? Well, it was, I mean, you know, I played by ear, and my, my older brother is a guitar player. Uh, he was really into the blues and the Beatles and stuff like that. Um, but what happened was, yeah, I'm self-taught like everybody else, but then I, uh, my, one of my closest friends is a fellow named Joel Corrington. He's an incredible classical bass player. He's still my closest friend after... Uh, 50 years or 51 years we've been friends and he was actually my first teacher so he gave me bass lessons to, to learn how to play classical bass that because uh, all I was all I was concerned about was getting my technique as a bass player together so I ended up studying with his teacher uh, and then there were no jazz schools at the time because I'll uh, start everything off by saying uh, jazz for me is the open system that I use to attach myself to whatever musics I happen to be involved with. Uh, my training is um, in the awareness is of being a jazz musician is what slots you into all these other things. I've done lots of other stuff where, you know, supposedly what they call world music. or you play, And basically it's the jazz musician who adapts to whatever music the other person's playing, it's very rare that you'll get somebody who's a Mongolian throat singer who can play over giant steps. Right. Right? But you can get John Coltrane to play with a Mongolian throat singer. So did you pursue jazz as soon as you started taking lessons? Well, no, I was classical. I was doing classical music, and right. obviously classical music was important too, was very important to me. Um, there were no jazz schools at the time. Right. And the level of bass playing was not as high as, as it is now. So I joked, you know, if you're a warm body with a bass, you could get a gig. And uh, so, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I was gigging all through high school. I had an R&B band in school with uh, Paul Corrington. He had a band called Pork Belly Futures. I don't know if you ever heard mm -hmm. of them. But he's a very famous author, the brother of my best friend, Joel Corrington. Right. And his older brother, Tony Corrington, who's a... Uh, a jazz uh, guitar player, blues. So I, you know, aligned with them, with my brother and my family and stuff, but also through the high school music system in Toronto, which was really great at the time. Not like it is now. It sucks, but much better. We had three music teachers. So that gave me an opportunity and uh, to access instruments like a double bass, a string bass that I would no normally never get. So bit by bit, I got good at playing classical music. And uh, I went to University of Toronto as a classical bass player. I mean, I was still playing jazz and still playing electric bass, but you know, my thing was there. 
I, I know you joined the Winnipeg Symphony. Yeah, years later. well, like was, I like was I said, well, at the goal was then when you when I was in my third year of university, I was doing terrible as a student because I was too busy working, too gigging. I was always playing in the Hamilton Philharmonic. You know, I had a choice to play with Billy Reed and the street people in Buffalo for 50 bucks or to go play with the Hamilton Philharmonic for $200. And so I like both of them I like equally, but one pays me 150 bucks more. So I'll take the I'll take the one that pays better and better working circumstances. In retrospect, maybe I should have gone with Billy to to, <laughs> to Buffalo. But uh no, I mean, I so I played in the Winnipeg Symphony, but I was also already playing in the Hamilton Philharmonic, and I was doing gigs around town, and I started doing some recording sessions too. I went to Winnipeg, uh, met my wife there, got fired uh, for being a troublemaker. But you were there for a few years. No, just two, just okay, two well, seasons. Yeah, right. no, it's the only time I've ever been out of Toronto. Moved. Out, I was when I was in the Winnipeg Symphony. Am I allowed to ask how you got fired or why uh, did you get fired from union, a symphony? Union, uh, oh. I got involved with union politics. Uh, that's a whole other story because back then there was no such thing as Canadian content regulations. Right. So I actually auditioned in New York City and I beat out nine Americans for the job. And it was only after I signed the contract that they realized I was a Canadian. So they didn't even, they never used to, I mean, it's a whole other thing. They never even used to audition musicians in Canada for Canadian jobs. So that all changed. This is in the 70s. But I will also say this, is that one of my other close friends and mentor is Dave Young. Dave Young is a, you know, Order of Canada, Juno-winning bass player, and he was sort of my teacher, but more my mentor. And he told me, he knew I was playing jazz because he played in the symphony, and he quit the symphony. That's why I went out there. He quit the symphony to go on the road with Oscar Peterson, and he said, come out, man. You, just, you played in the symphony, and you played the jazz gigs and and all the rest. So that's that's the uh, the other connection. So after that, I was not happy in Winnipeg anyway, so I came back to Toronto, and I started doing shows. I was playing in the opera, the ballet. We did a lot of studio work. I did jingles. Because I did a lot of different things, because I was playing classical music and jazz and electric bass and funk and that kind of stuff so my days would uh, would be very different uh, than most people's you know um, tell me about um the connection for you between jazz and classical music because this is something i've come across a lot with classical musicians if you ask them what kind of music they like they tend to mention jazz as one of the first alternatives or whatever the next choice yeah yeah tell me that connection for you well, it's because it's a question of musical sophistication. And there's a, a thing about uh, about jazz. You know, it's the apple of knowledge that when you gain knowledge, you lose innocence. And you lose your naivete on, on certain things. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, it's difficult to go back to capture that feeling that you had when you didn't really know what you were doing, right. but once you start to know what you're doing, it's like uh, it's you're going down the rabbit hole. You're, there's even more stuff every. You're always learning something new, but to get back to that state of innocence where you know every everything you're agog uh, about this stuff there, it's a difficult thing. So with classical musicians, uh, they're not taught to improvise. Mm. They hear music in a different way. Um, 
but what they do is you know they're 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 listen they're listening to melodic and harmonic sophistication that doesn't exist in in a lot of things but there's that purity of a pop music or the blues that can transcend it see for me i'm a jazz musician but i never do a gig where we don't play the blues mm-hmm. you know to me you know because uh with jazz music without the blues it's not really uh it does it's not it's not really super appealing to me i don't i'm not really into um um highly intellectual jazz i like uh, i like jazz that i mean that's my uh my uh, north stars are people like john coltrane mm-hmm. so you know he was a blues musician he came from playing the blues he played with little bostic and things like that but the even at his most sophisticated harm, harmonic sense and most uh, out, you know avant-garde thing there there was still this this fundamental um, basis the roots of the music comes from that place so you have the ability to look at a sheet of music and just play it quite well on first sight or listen to a band and just improvise and follow along you have that ability to do both yeah well most jazz musicians are like that right most jazz musicians uh, are, can read music. But if I was to ask you how you approach music differently as a classical musician or a classical bassist versus a jazz bassist. Well, a classical, okay, I, I look at all music. I mean, it's, maybe this will be a little too esoteric, but all music is uh, our algorithms. Mm-hmm. They're musical algorithms. So there's, you know, within a fixed system, a, a how, do you, how do you do something? So with classical music, what people say, see, you see about reading music, it's just notes and dots on a piece of paper, right? right? So the, the thing is, it, it isn't music. It's a, that's a paucity of the, la- the English language. In German, they make a distinction between what you hear, that's music, and what you read, that's called noten. Hmm. They make a, we we call it music. Yeah, you, know, you can read music. No, you can read sheet music. You can hear music. So when you, even when you're reading music, you're playing by ear because otherwise, how are you going to know whether you're playing the right notes? Right. right. It's not like a machine. It's not a typewriter. Except maybe the piano is closer to it, but no, it's not a typewriter. You actually have to hear it, especially string instruments, wood instruments. You have to hear what you're playing for the sound. And then you have to, the algorithm, part of the algorithm of classical music is the phrasing, the dynamics, the technique. There's the sophistication of the composition that no improviser can do because it has to be put down in a certain way. You can have extended forms, you know. I mean, I'll go back to the blues. It's 12 bars or 8 bar forms. They're like very small. I mean, right. you can do a lot within them, but that's a very, very, you know, that's child's play for most classical musicians is to do something that's 12 bars long you know but to develop something like that you know extended for it's a whole other whole other thing so the composer does all the the grunt work on that and in classical music the composer does all the grunt work the performer in classical music doesn't improvise Mm -hmm. but creates the sound that's on the paper and there's a reason why you know for instance you get an actor reading shakespeare a great actor is a great actor, even though he didn't write the words. Right. You get Laurence Olivier or, you know, Kenneth Branagh or someone like that reading uh, Hamlet. They're going to be different. Same words. 
it's a performance based on somebody else's composition. In jazz music, you learn to start off with that thing and then you improvise upon these smaller forms. They're all, you know, they're not crazy forms, you know. Um, but I see them as two very different things and maybe because I don't play, but, but as a musician, do you approach a classical session differently than a jazz session, than a... Well, as a bass, you know, like I said in the, in the, the old days, and as a bass player, you know, we you can get away with murder. Uh, and, no, you just have to be again because you don't have to make up the. If you can play, ni um, make a nice sound, play in tune, and play with everybody else, and know the when I say back to the performance algorithms, you know how to follow a conductor, you know how to phrase with everybody else there. You're hearing that, you're tuning the way they tune, your phrase dynamics, all these increments of music that other musics don't uh, don't even bother with, you know. I mean, most of the times you hear a band, they're playing being, you can see the waveform. The waveform looks like a, a log. Mm -hmm. You hear classical music, you'll see peaks and valleys and dynamics, things like that. This is all musical uh, information that, uh, that they take very, very seriously, and mm -hmm. you have to be aware of it when you're doing that kind of music. Just like when you do other kinds of music, you have to be aware of what's involved with that. You can't, you can't uh, dismiss other music because it might not be as harmonically sophisticated, but it might be rhythmically more a hundred times more sophisticated, right. you know, or um, melodically like Indian music a thousand times more, you know. And then you have like these cycles in Indian music of like forty-eight beats amazing that these people can do that you know mm -hmm. this there's this whole other thing so I, I don't really uh i mean i don't really put a uh, musics on a pantheon of uh, you know every every music has its thing right uh, a level of sophistication that people who follow that music are involved with that music take it very seriously and uh you know you perform within what they what i love about playing being a jazz musician is it's like open source coding Mm -hmm. That it's like Linux, meaning that you can adapt it to anything, you know, anything. You can have funky jazz, you can have blues jazz, you can have Cuban, Latin jazz, Brazilian jazz, you can have uh, Jewish jazz, Italian jazz, you can have all this stuff there will mix in because it's an open system. You can have Louis Armstrong and John Coltrane and Anthony Braxton and Keith Jarrett on the same gig. Because it's open system, they can everything they do can be done, because they're adapting. They're playing, they're playing by ear, but they're also being uh, harmonically astute and uh, aware of what the of what is involved with the structure of making music. That's a complete different discipline than playing a Bach cello suite. So when you were with the symphony, other than the Union issue, did you love playing in the symphony? Well, I played in lots of symphonies after Winnipeg. I mean, right. I was in the, the opera orchestra. I was in the ballet. I, I was principal bass of the Esprit Orchestra. I played with the Toronto Symphony, National Arts Centre Orchestra. You know, I, I had a, like a bona fide career as a classical bass player. Right. Um, and I still do. I still play chamber music. I, I, I'm not as, you know, not as much as I used to, but I go and play with uh, in Mexico with a bunch of players from New York, members of the Met Orchestra, things like that. So I mean, you know, I take when I'm involved with that, I take it 
very seriously, as serious as uh, playing uh, a change is going to come, like we did this afternoon. Right. You know, because there's a whole other, again, another, another discipline to this stuff that uh, that you have to respect all the music that you're doing. You know, you can't you can't dismiss. Too many musicians dismiss other musics. You know. But it, it sounds like you've you've always been open to many different forms of music. Well, I have a short attention span. <laughs> you know. But I mean, everything I do basically comes back to jazz. Even when I was playing the symphony, I don't listen to classical music at home. The only thing I listen to at home is uh, even is mostly projects I'm working on. But uh, you know, there's a there's a great book called "This Is Your Brain on Music," mm -hmm. and it postulates that most people uh, have their musical taste set by the time they're 14. And everything else is reinforcing what their taste is or enhancing what they already liked. Right. You know? So, I mean, 14, I was listening to Bill Evans, Miles Davis, Oscar Peterson, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. Still listen to them. Right. You know? But also, I listen to Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, <laughs> Donny Hathaway, because I have this other life of my... And that is related to me to jazz. R&B, soul, funk, it's all blues, it's all related to jazz. Not so, so much rock. But if, if I was to look at R&B, it would seem, you've, you've mentioned it as a guilty pleasure. Well, I say guilty pleasure because it's, but the thing is this, is that because you have facility on an instrument does not mean you know how to play the music. I have a lot of, I had, you know, I have facility on the bass, but I didn't know really anything about how you really sit in a pocket, how you play a groove, how... Um, so, you know, I started playing R&B to, 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 to give myself, I was also doing recording, we used to do a lot of recording sessions, so I'd be in the studio playing things, and, you know, I, I wanted to play at the same level as guys who were doing it all the, you know, full time, doing so that So how do thing. you do that? Start playing. So I'd be playing, I'd play R&B bands and blues bands, and Toronto's got a pretty good scene for that. You know, but uh, the guitar player, this band that I have souls to, a very, very fine guitarist named David Gray. He was, his band was the Parachute Club. I mm -hmm. don't know if you remember them. Yep. But he's, a, you know, he's a, a guy who can play all sorts of different music. He plays blues and R&B, but he can read charts. And there's a musical literacy that just because maybe the music doesn't require it doesn't mean people don't have it. So there's a musical literacy. And he was pretty serious about... Uh, about the music so I would go and we, we've had the band like I say and I learn a lot from playing pe with people who do this stuff you know so at to the point where I'll be playing there's lots of people don't know that I play classical music they just think I'm an R&B bass player hmm. or a, a you know a funk bass player and that's fine you know um, but that's like sort of an aside you know of, right. of, of stuff I've done um, you've also done theater Musical yeah, theater, theater. was that was when you say when you're busy. That's what I when I was busy, I was doing theater. I hated doing theater. Tell and me what that is. Tell me pl what playing in a theater band, what that discipline is. Well, the discipline is showing up on time, and you have to play the same thing every night, and um, you have to find a way to make it interesting. So I would make it interesting by making everything technically challenging. You know to do that but I got bored with it and I uh, I got really tired of it I mean I started doing it uh, 
when I was 25 or so, and I stopped when I was 40. I uh, worked at the Royal Alex. I played all the shows there. I, but, you know, at a certain point, I said, no, I can't, I can't stand this stuff anymore. You Is know? it just because it's so repetitive? Yeah, like, but it's, it's also because it was keeping me from, it was distracting me from what I really wanted to be doing. So I walked away from some very lucrative uh, situations just because it wasn't for me, you know? Right. And then the other thing you did, because you've done tons of stuff, is your work in the studio. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I've always loved uh, recording studios. I always, you know, I would always, again, I guess being a nerd, you'd be the, the you'd read the uh, album covers to see who's, who's playing on what, you know? And... You know the history of popular music, jazz, uh, everything is is all based on uh, recordings. You mm -hmm. listen, to, you know, this is what's different from the hundred years before that. We, mm -hmm. You know, we our our whole aesthetic is determined by what we heard recorded, not by what we heard played. You know, uh, so we hear a recording. It's a, it, it fascinated me on the the process of it. I did my first recording session when I was fourteen. Uh, playing some jazz with uh, some guy who wanted to be Frank Sinatra. But I used to, you know, I worked at Danny, Danny Lamois studio in ha Grand Avenue. I, as I was telling you, I played on King Biscuit, Biscuit Boy record. We used to do film scores, jingles, things like that. So you get a wide variety of stuff. I just always felt great. And it's also a rite of passage is that, that you got to, to be a, a certain level of musician that you got to be in a recording studio that meant you could play. And you're right. playing with uh, you're in with the big boys. So at that's, what point did you know that that's where you were at? Well, I'm still not there, but uh, well, I don't. Know. I'm still working <laughs> on it. I'm still working on it. No, I mean the the whole the whole history of recorded music is another thing too. It's all changed. I mean, the whole world has changed with that stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, I adapt, and I've always uh, again I relate everything to being a bass player because being a bass player means that. In addition to playing your part, you've got to be aware of all the other parts around you. And that's why when you're aware of the other parts around you, then you get this other musical sense of of stuff. And uh, that's why I like being in the studio. So I became a record producer doing that kind of stuff because uh, I liked, you know, again, I just follow my interests, mm -hmm. you know. And I follow my interests and they lead me. I don't do anything because I think it'll make me some money because... Every time you think that you can do something that will make you some money, there's someone else who doesn't think about doing it for money that really loves it, and they're going to do it better than you. Because the love of what you're doing is going to take you farther than looking for the bread that goes with it. When did you learn that? When did that become a reality? Um, well, it's not really a reality. I mean, I'd never thought of it as any sort of... Uh, epiphany or anything like that because my whole point was I only you know I only was following stuff that I thought was interesting right. you know so I mean when I was playing classical music I wasn't doing it because I thought well I'll get some money out of the thing I was doing it because I was interested in this you know great scheme of uh, of the greatest uh, accomplishments of uh, two centuries of European music you know the same reason I, you know, listen to jazz or listen to Charlie Parker. And, uh, I mean, just it's astounding music when it goes that far. I mean, the other part of it is that there's so much music in the world that 
um, after a while, you have to decide. You, you, know, you know, say about jack of all trades. That isn't so much it. You have to decide. It's like a wine. Like there's all sorts of wine grown all over the world. Mm -hmm. California wines, Calif you know, Quebec wines, Ontario wines, French wines. I'm Italian, specifically Sicilian. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I would uh, learn about Sicilian wines because I go to Sicily and I see. Now, that's not to say California wines are no good. Right. They're great. French wines, I know a little bit about French wine, but not that much. I'm not an authority. I can enjoy it. But there are people that love French wines that can tell me and school me all about that wine, which is great. Mm -hmm. But I can't, I can't do all that. But I still like drinking wine. So the music for me is like wine and food, you know? So at one point you decided that you would pursue things that you love to do more than jobs. Yeah. How did that decision come about? Well, because, uh, you know, I married quite young and I had a, child, a family, so I'm responsible fellows. You know, I wanted to take care of my family, and which is what I did. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, for everything I did that I needed to make some money to support my family, I made a point always of doing things that made uh, made it enjoyable for me. You know, now in retrospect, I should have just done the stuff that I enjoyed all along because it ended up becoming more financially viable and uh, enjoyable. So, so, you know, I, I mean, I learned a lot from playing in the theater, but. You know, I tell people now I've been theater-free for 25 years. So I haven't gone into theater. I haven't played a show uh, at all. It's not really not, nothing at, at all interests me in doing, you know. So I, I think... I don't even play in orchestras anymore. Right. You know, but I, I like playing in orchestras for the rehearsal and a concert. As a lifestyle, no, it's, it's, it's a grind because you, you get tired of it. Can you explain what that grind is? Well, because you have to do it every. It's it's a full time job. Right. It was pre-COVID. Yes. You know, pre-COVID it was a full time job. But no, I wasn't interested in having a full time job. I was interested in playing jazz. I was interested in traveling and playing other kinds of music. Okay, so the other kind of one of the other things that you got into heavily was um, Latin jazz. Yeah. Now there's a see there's an unfortunate term. I don't like that word, Latin okay. jazz. Oops, sorry. No, no, that's okay. It's a, it's a, it's a common thing, but uh, again, you know, there's a. You think in terms of what we call Latin jazz is this, is tango Latin jazz is samba Latin jazz right. is Cuban music is that Latin jazz mambo? No, they're all identified with various various countries. So a lot of stuff that we call salsa and Latin jazz is Cuban jazz, or you could say Afro-Cuban jazz. It's like saying rock and roll, you know, British rock. Compared, no, it's rock came from the United States. Right. You know, worked its way up from rock and roll, worked its its way up from New Orleans, and uh, so yeah, you can say yeah, but you don't, you know, nobody turns around and say, well, we invented Canadian rock. No, you're playing rock music in Canada. Right. You know, you're playing blues in Canada. So. So with when it comes to Latin music, I say I, I'm adept at playing Cuban music because I spent a, a lot of time playing Cuban music, Cuban jazz with really great players. You've talked to Daphne's, but mm -hmm. um, and Brazilian music, which I really like. And Brazilian jazz, 
it's different. If you play one music, doesn't mean you can play the other. You mm -hmm. have to have respect for it. So the, uh, yeah, playing uh, with Cubans, I have a natural affinity with Cubans. I speak Spanish, I, you know, and uh, again, when I left, when, here's an interesting way I got into it. When I left uh, the Winnipeg Symphony and came back to Toronto, I was playing in the opera, and uh, one of my friends was, uh, his brother was playing in a salsa band, and they always needed bass players. So the singer was playing bass, and I said, well, you know, I went to rehearsal and spoke to the guy, and I said, well, here, show me what you want me to play. So I had a natural affinity for it. I spoke Spanish, so I started playing salsa bands. And I played in salsa bands in Toronto and recorded stuff, and because my name's Roberto, they all thought I was Cuban or Spanish. Mm. And uh, so I was accepted in that community. And again, I'm just following my interest as this stuff. And if you follow, go down the rabbit hole and you see all this great music. And then um, I started playing with Jane Bennett. Mm -hmm. We actually recorded her one of her albums in the studio. Oh. And... Uh, met these really fantastic musicians along the way, went to Cuba for the first time. So what was that and like? That was that was more like an epiphany because by going there, it showed me what, how little I knew about their music and how much I had to learn and how much I was being taught by, by these people that were doing this stuff. And again, musical sophistication in Cuba is, is super high. You know the Buena Vista Social Club record? Mm -hmm. Well, we were recording Eladio Duran's record, my good friend. I still play with him. We were recording his record upstairs, and they were recording downstairs in the same studio, same day. And the interesting thing is that everybody at the Ry Cooter session could read music except for two people, Ry Cooter and his son. <laughs> we're talking about the conga player. Yeah. And the Everybody there, that's the level of musicianship they were at. They were... I mean, they're fine. It would be like if a Cuban showed up to, uh, oh, I don't know, Motown and started playing uh, How Sweet It Is, and some and everybody says, oh, we've discovered this new music. Well, it was new to us. Right. For Cubans, all there's their, you know, there was their music from from whatever, and then it became this huge phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But those are all every Cuban musician knew every one of those songs. So it's, when you when you go there and you think, oh, I got a lot to learn. Yeah. Then what do you do? Is you it learn. just a matter of playing and? You play and then you study and read and learn and ask questions and people tell you things. You learn the different rhythms that uh, involve with it and the structure of stuff. And Cuba, what's interesting about Cuba is that it's got the closest direct uh, relationship with Africa, West mm -hmm. Africa. The guys are singing Yoruba in Cuba. You know, I was playing with folkloric musicians. They involved with the religion, Santeria. I was the only one that wasn't a Santero. But... Uh, a part of their the thing so for them it's like gospel music for for r&b and blues musicians for them it's afro-cuban music is based out of the santeria stuff that comes directly from africa so there's this super connection there with that and there's a super sophistication rhythmic sophistication that goes with this stuff now, in addition they've taken all of the harmonic and stuff from uh, jazz and put it on top of this stuff so you you know your feet are dancing, but your 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 brain is thinking, and that's that's what happens with a lot of that music. It's that's part of the appeal of it was that it had this uh, connection to a vernacular, 
a social music, as I like to call it, again, intellectually sophisticated, but it had this the groove underneath there, you know, that uh, is like a Stevie Wonder tune, mm -hmm. you know? So, like, uh, it's operating on so many different levels, and that's what, what appealed to me about it. And also, I just had, I ended up making a lot of friends. I went to Cuba a bunch of times. Um, I got to play with some of the greatest drummers in the world. And, uh, yeah, again, I just follow my interests, you know? So, you mentioned Hilario Duran. Yeah. You produced his albums? and I produced... Uh, three of his albums and I played on most of them except for the last the last two so and we had a trio very strong trio with Mark Kelso but I traveled all over the world with him and when we were with Jane uh, I did two albums with Jane or three albums with her again with all the Cubans and like I you know there was uh, Eladio taught me a lot but you know, you you, you interviewed Daphnis Prieto, and mm -hmm. Daphnis, li I he lived at my house uh, for a couple of years. I knew him when he couldn't speak English. You know, he's now he's uh, MacArthur Grant uh, genius. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so I mean, and then we recorded here with uh, Daphnis. We recorded my records here at this studio that I'm at, um, and just I I like to. Be involve myself in, with people that are at a way higher level than I'm at, so that I can kind of pull myself up, you know, to to play with them. Did you ever go through a rough time musically? Well, yeah, rough in what way? Well, you questioned what you do, or that you weren't working, or you weren't finding what you wanted to do. Like it just sounds like there's always stuff for you to do. Well, here's the thing: is yeah, you can always, you know, I'm the sort of person that. You can either make a phone, wait for a phone call, or you can make a phone call. And I'm the sort of person that makes the phone call. If I'm not doing anything, then I try to do something. I try to make something happen, be around things that are, you know, that are happening, and uh, try and, you know, but set is that like a cold call? Is that no, 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 no? Just do things that in, that are enjoyable to me. Right. Things that I want to do. Say, look, I got this project. You know, for instance, I. Uh, at the Orbit Room, mm -hmm. the, my band Soul Stew, we opened the Orbit Room, right. and but we had a steady gig down the street for ten years at uh, the College Street Bar. And you're asking me about playing R and B. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I knew the owner of the thing, and I said, "Look, I'd like to." I said, "Why don't we try something out?" You know, well, I was doing jazz fusion jazz, and I said, "You know, this fusion jazz is boring. We're going to get a singer, and we'll do the R and B." And well, I, and then it became this phenomenon on College Street. We were the first band to do live music on College Street, and then from there, the Orbit Room wanted us to move over there. We did the first bit, but we stayed where we were. So I didn't go looking for a gig at the Orbit Room, right. but I fell into one because of it, you know. And if you make yourself av uh, available to, and uh, and people know that you're aware that you want to, you and you're an easy person to get along with, um, opportunities happen, you know. But, I mean, I dispensed with a lot of stuff because, like I say, I was a young man with a family and uh, um, I got to take care of business. Mm -hmm. You always got to take care of business. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, hustling 
to get somebody else's gig or this or cold calling or anything like that but to be people know that you're around and people know you can do something you know you can talk your way in and play your play your way out Cause I, I know it's probably wrong but i think of bass players often being sidemen and oh. waiting for calls so well it depends depends yeah i mean yeah there's lots lots of times lots of people don't have to wait for the calls they they get a call right. but you know if you want to do certain projects and you're not getting called for them then you can either get bitter about not getting called or make your own project and then so i'm you know make my own project then you make your own project then you get called you know right so and do these how did these projects come to you again i only only things that interest me if i'm interested in doing something then i i just follow it you know so but that's that's about it you know um here's an interesting story uh i'm wearing this shirt this is from mali okay in bamako mm -hmm. now, i went to bamako how did i end up in bamako there's a band called gorillas right. you ever heard of them i heard i read about it okay so i don't know anything about gorillas but my son did my son is was into hip-hop and stuff so they called me on a friday night because they had to start a tour and their bass player was a guy named Junior Dan, or Left Hand Dan, famous reggae bass player, played Burning Spear, all these other things. I like reggae. I like, specifically, I like dub reggae, too. Mm -hmm. It was stuff I was listening to. Not because it, it might get me a gig, <laughs> just because it was stuff I liked. You know, I'd hear it, and I'd say, oh, yeah, dub reggae, Augustus Pablo with the melodica and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I get a phone call on a Friday night that the bass player got arrested, they're starting a North American tour, and uh, they need a bass player to fill in for their big show at the docks tomorrow night. So I, I said to my son, I said, you ever heard of these guys? He says, what? He <laughs> says, yeah, because I was on EMI with Jane Bennett, Blue mm -hmm. Note, and they said, we need a studio musician who can read music. We'll write out the parts for him, and he can play the gig with us tomorrow night. So I get a phone call, the leader of the band, First question, he asked, he asked me what things I've done. Then he asked me, do you know who Augustus Pablo is? I said, yeah, of course. That was my audition. <laughs> was because he wanted somebody, yeah, there were lots of people who could do lots of things, but he wanted someone who was aware of the aesthetic of what they were doing. Augustus Pablo is this dub reggae with the melodica. So I said, okay, well, and I went down and uh, met them there, played through the stuff, the the keyboard player was from a band, Jamiroquai. Mm -hmm. He wrote out, again, a jazz musician. He said, here's the lines. He wrote out the bass lines for these very simple songs. I played them. I said, wow, that's great. So okay. What about the next one? Can we do? So I went through the tunes. I said, that's amazing. It's not amazing. It's just <laughs> training. You know, you read right, this right. stuff. This is one of the easiest things I'd ever done in my life. But is it easy? Like, I know that this is what you've prepared yourself all your life to do, is to be able to be in these situations, going to studios and... and no, no, I, it's... Let me, I'll go a little further for this this thing here. So the the easy part was playing playing the part, the notes that were there. Right. The hard part was to make sure I was playing the right feel with the guys around me because they weren't playing, you know, like jazz musicians play. It was a heavy pocket. 
And I had to learn how to play, really lay back on the time like a reggae guy does and play that deep bass, which was completely out of my wheelhouse. But I had to learn to play a certain way that I, I thought I knew, but I didn't. And then I immediately picked up on what I didn't know and adapted to it. This to is play, in the sound check. Yeah. Because I have to, you know, and then you do the tour and they say, well, can you sit on the time a bit more? I say, yeah, of course, you know, because I wasn't aware of it. Right. And so they said, well, if you, you said, can you do the tour with us? I at said, the one gig. Yeah, at the one gig. And for North America and Mexico. And then but he said, but if you do the tour with us, you have to come to Africa because we're doing this project called Mali Music with all these Malian musicians. Ali Farka Toure mm -hmm. and uh, Tumani Diabate and all these famous Afri again I listen to African music I like it <laughs> so I you know I said great so I went to, to Africa I went to Bamako which is interesting place again because it's talking blues that's where they think the blues came from mm -hmm. and you you could hear it there you could hear guys playing John Lee Hooker tunes and you hear every a lot of people playing Hendrix there. But with their acoustic instruments on uh, the the uh, this called ingoni, that's a hunter's cora. It's like that's where they think the the banjo and the guitar came from. This mm. this concept of it, they have the swing thing, the twelve eight feel, and you heard this one uh, woman singing. She sounded like Aretha Franklin, you know. So I got into playing African music there with these guys, and the interesting thing was that. Everybody else is British rockers, a little younger than me. But the Africans came to me. I was the only one who spoke some French. And they said, you're different than these guys. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? They said, no, there's... I said, what? I said, well, I play jazz and I've been to Cuba a lot. I play with... And they said, ah, bien sûr. That's what it was, mm -hmm. because the connection back to their music. Now, obviously... Uh, I'm not African. I'm not Cuban. I'm an Italian-Canadian. And when I speak Italian, I speak with a Sicilian accent from 50, 50 100 years ago. I sound like a, a hillbilly. <laughs> but I speak Italian, and I have an accent. I speak sp Spanish with a Cuban accent. And I speak... That's what... Uh, I'm going to get back to vernacular. So what I'm saying is... I'm not trying to be what I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to be play and be what I am, trying my best to respect the music that I'm playing with the people that I'm playing with. Okay, so one of the one of the things that you were involved in, another one of these projects you were involved in, is was a project with your brother Michael. Yeah. And the Sicilian project. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Well, and that, how Sicilian are you, and how oh, Sicilian, well, Sicilian did you become? Well, but I'm the first of my family born out of Sicily. Right. My brother and sister were born in Sicily. My parents were. Um, so my parents didn't speak English. I mean, we grew up speaking Sicilian, and it's informed our, you know, you have a foot in both worlds, as, as almost all Canadians are hyphenated, you know. Right. Uh, so you grew up with that, that other thing. Now, my, brother, my younger brother, Michael, is a very fine guitar player, he loves the blues too. I don't mm -hmm. know where he got that from. Uh, no, he he and I share very similar musical tastes. Um, and uh, I, 
you know Alan Lomax? You know who that mm -hmm. is? Well, Alan Lomax, after he did all those great field recordings in, with Lead Belly and all the rest of that, he was blacklisted as a communist in the 50s. Right. And he, so he decided that he would start recording music in Europe. So he started in Scotland, worked his way down, recorded all the folk music, went through England, went to France, Spain. Then he worked his way to Sicily and did all these field recordings of Sicilian music in 1953, the year that my father emigrated to Canada. And they even recorded in our hometown in Sicily. They recorded somebody who my dad knew. Mm -hmm. So when these, I got a hold of these uh, Sicilian recordings, the Alan Lomax ones, and I was really taken because, you know, it's a uh, a Proustian thing. It's a, you hear it and it brings you back because that was music I listened to, you know, weddings and stuff at home. My dad used to listen to that that stuff. And so I, I played it for my brother, and that inspired him to put together this thing. And, you know, I, I was involved with that. And we got a prize from our uh, Raguzani del Mondo. It's a place in, uh, in Sicily. We got a prize for this project mm -hmm. and for contributions to Sicilian culture outside of Sicily. My brother went, got a, uh, a grant and lived in Sicily with his family. So we also have a lot of family there, first cousins, that we're very close to, that I see. And I've been going to Sicily. Uh, well, the first time I went was when I was six. And from the time, you know, I went, I was 18, then I went 25. And then from my 30s on, I would go every two years, then it would be every year. So I'm an Italian citizen, and I go to Sicily a lot. So when you played that music, did you have a connection to it a little more than maybe you would have with... The African music or the Cuban music? No, because uh, the 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 no, not not really, because because uh, my brother's take on it is that he didn't want to. He right. took that stuff and he wanted to to put it through what we in Toronto listen to. So if you listen to, sure, it's a Sicilian music, but he's put some, we put some Afrobeat in there. He's played some, you know, put some meters kind of stuff in. Uh, we mix it up with the idea of looking at that music from our point of view, right. not from their point of view, right? So we're looking at it, and he's looking at it specifically because I just facilitated and produced and played bass on it. But uh, my brother's aesthetic on that was to approach it from us, from Canada, the new world, to uh, to see uh, what the old world, you know, now some people in the old world they didn't appreciate it, you know, but right. we weren't we weren't really interested in making them appreciate it. We were interested in uh, he was interested in doing specific stuff that was this aesthetic that uh, he shares, you know. So it sounds like again you say world music, but I don't like that term either, you know. To me, uh, jazz is the original world music. I know you played. You come from a very musical family. I know that you play with your brothers. Well, I just play with my, my younger brother, Michael. Right. He's But the thing is this, is I'm 12 years older than him. What's so, that like, though? What's that? What's it like well, because I, he basically was raised as, an, as a, because he's 12 years younger than everybody else. So he was raised as a, as a, a almost an only child with a lot of uncles and aunts. Right. I grew up in a, a, a big household of a lot of people. 
but uh you know but like i say i'm um i was a professional musician at 16 i mean i've never had this thought well what am i going to do you know but i never had as soon as i heard ray brown at 13 i knew what i was it wasn't like it wasn't like i have to decide what i want to do specifically my brother came at it a little later, but he did grow up around music and all the rest. He he had his own thing. He graduated uh, from York University and uh, academically really, really well. And then we didn't play that much till after. And mm -hmm. then at a certain age, uh, 12 years of difference in age isn't that big deal anymore. Right. You know, it is when you're 24 and your your kid brother's 12. It's, that's another story. Yeah. But when you're 52 and your you know your brother's 40, it's not that big a deal anymore. So, you know, we've worked together on a lot of projects. I mean, we work apart too. Mm -hmm. so, and I know you've kind of competed against one another on Junos and stuff. Well, that one time, but as I pointed out on that when I was interviewed about that, is that uh, I produced both records. So I couldn't lose. I w I would be I would be uh, I wouldn't be disappointed if I if I won. But I would, I'd be very happy if my brother did. Right. So, no, because I was equally involved with uh, with with the projects, you know. Um, but again, it's an interesting turn of, turn of events. So I went to Africa with these guys, and then uh, they came back. Damon Albarn is this, and he came back to Toronto with another project called "The Good, The Bad, The Queen," and it was an interesting band because it had. Uh, the bass player from The Clash, Paul Simonon on mm. bass, and Tony Allen on drums. Uh, I don't know, you know who Tony yeah. Allen is? Fella Kuti? Yeah. I'm a huge Afrobeat fan. So I got to meet Tony. They were here. He came to sit and saw my band at the Rex, sat in. And I said, Tony, you want to play a tune? Uh, kind of record a tune with me while you're in town? He said, yeah, I'd love to. Came here, recorded the title track of my album. And I was friends with Tony Allen. Wow. So, um, now I didn't go looking to play with Tony Allen. <laughs> I didn't go looking to rec record Afrobeat music or anything like that. I just happened to, to, to fall into this other stuff. So last year I produced a, a Nigerian singer, Afro Afrobeat thing, you know? And so it just, like I say, if, you, if, you keep, if you're interested in stuff, you, you, you fall into it. Well, I... First of all, I want to thank you for having me in your studio. I haven't done in like a face-to-face -face interview in weeks. So okay. this is a real thrill. Um, and also, to meet you is, I really appreciate you taking this time. I need to wrap this up, but I want to finish with one question. From that kid who said, oh, I want to play like... Ray that, Brown. Ray Brown. Like, when you look back on your journey, how do you summarize it? I still haven't done that yet. I've been trying to. I'm still trying to play like Ray Brown. <laughs> You know, um, yeah. No, Would you ever get there? No, no. That, that, but there was a famous cellist named Pablo Casals, yeah, mm -hmm. and he was practicing Bach cello suits when he was ninety-five. And they said, "You're still practicing at ninety-five." And you know what his response was? He said, "I think I'm making progress." <laughs> so I think I'm making progress. I'm still working on it. You know, um, tomorrow, for instance, I'm recording, producing uh, Dave Young's record. He's eighty years old, wow. and we haven't even released the last one we did. He's still pushing to, to go through this. Just, to me, these are my uh, my mentors, my uh, my models, are people that want to that keep doing this stuff. 
you know you can you can keep going forward so that's that's all I want to do is keep going forward even in these challenging times you know well thank you so much for doing this well really thanks for asking it. me hope I, really I don't bore it. anybody but no, that's, that's great thank you okay